You are listening to Bonafide Needs for April 2022. Hi, Mike McGill here. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. Our feature this month is a broad discussion with Arnold and Porter partner Sumi Rhee on the economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. government following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact of those sanctions on U.S. companies, including federal contractors. Before we get to that, we'll cover a number of other important developments on more traditional government contracting topics. In the first segment, I'll break down three recent procurement rules, a final federal acquisition regulation FAR rule on the Buy American Act, a final DOD FAR supplement DFARS rule on enhanced debriefing procedures, and a proposed Department of Agriculture rule that would require, among other things, disclosure of labor and employment issues in connection with USDA procurements. In the second segment, PubK's Bill Olver will flag several notable federal contracting headlines from the past month, including actions from the Biden administration on contractor pay equity, a pronouncement from the General Services Administration addressing the impact of inflation on federal supply schedule pricing, and a Department of Defense proposed rule on its Metter protege program, among other headlines. And the final segment is my discussion with Sumi focused on trade and sanctions issues in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We cover the basics on economic sanctions generally and the Russian sanctions specifically and touch on the various types of sanctions, broadly defined, targeting Russia including new export controls, new import controls, and new restrictions on financial institutions. We discuss, among many other things, how the export control laws are being applied to place restrictions on products and components produced overseas based on or using U.S. technology, including things like semiconductors, telecommunications equipment, computers, avionics, and aircraft components, among other types of electronics. We also discuss steps companies can take to mitigate risks. For this first segment, we're highlighting several important regulatory developments from the past month or so. The first is the final Buy American Act rule issued on March 7th. We'll leave the site for that rule and the others in the show notes. The primary purpose of this rulemaking was to implement Executive Order 14005 from January 2021 titled, Ensuring the Future is Made in All of America by All of America's Workers. The order's stated purpose is strengthening domestic preferences in federal procurements, And this final rule does so primarily by increasing the domestic content requirements for end products and construction materials under contracts subject to the Buy American Act. Before getting into the changes, some quick background on the Buy American Act for context. Unlike other sourcing regimes, the Buy American Act does not impose an outright ban on foreign products. Instead, it applies a price penalty to foreign products, generally a 20% penalty when competing against large businesses, 30% when competing against small businesses, and 50% across the board for DOD procurements. Think of it as a finger on the scale, if you will, in competitive procurements favoring domestic products. What is a domestic end product? The Buy American Act and the implementing FAR rules generally apply a two-part test. The first part is the product must be manufactured domestically. That part is not changing with this rule. The second part is the product must be manufactured from a certain percentage of domestic content. That percentage is measured based on the cost of manufacture, produce, or acquire components. This second part of the Buy American Act test is called the domestic content threshold. A product that is predominantly iron or steel is subject to a 95% threshold, and other manufactured, non-commercially available off-the-shelf products are subject to a 55% threshold. 
the final rule implements the administration's policy objectives by adjusting upwards this domestic content threshold. As further background, it's worth noting a couple things the rule does not change. First, it does not change the applicability of the Buy American Act. Keep in mind that the Buy American Act does not apply to all procurements, most notably procurements subject to the Trade Agreements Act, including most over $183,000, are exempt from the Buy American Act. Some contracts are still subject to the Buy American Act over that threshold, probably most notably sole source acquisitions, small business set-aside contracts, and acquisitions of arms, ammunition, and war materials. Second, the rule does not change the existing exemption that provides commercially available off-the-shelf items or COTS items are not required to meet the domestic content threshold, or change the exception to that exception for iron and steel products, or change the exception to the exception to the exception for metal fasteners. With that background, how did the final rule change the domestic content threshold? First, it increases the threshold, increasing it to 60% initially effective October 25th of this year after a grace period, then to 65% in 2024, and to 75% in 2029. Contractors subject to these requirements will be expected to comply with a threshold applicable at the time of delivery. So it's not the case that the standard in place upon contract formation applies for the life of the contract. There is an exception provision called alternate domestic content, or ADC, under which the threshold applicable at the time of contract formation can be locked in for the duration of the contract. But that requires approval of the senior procurement executive and review from OMB's Made in America office. So expect exceptions to be rare. Second, the final rule establishes a fallback threshold, allowing agencies to use the pre-existing 55% threshold with a determination that there are absolutely no end products compliant with a higher standard, or at least none available at a reasonable cost. Now, this fallback standard cannot be applied to iron and steel products, products comprised of 50% or more of iron and steel, and the fallback will sunset in 2030. Third, the final rule mandates an enhanced price evaluation preference for domestic products considered to be critical items or made of critical components. Domestic products in these categories will receive an even greater advantage on price than normal. What will be considered critical and what will be the price preference? That'll be established through another rulemaking with a list eventually codified at FAR 25105 to be updated every four years. That rulemaking will also establish post-award obligations to report domestic content of critical items and critical components. So this aspect of this final rule, which primarily implements a different executive order on U.S. supply chain, is not quite fully baked yet. Lastly, the final rule does not replace the component test with a test based on the value added to a product through U.S.-based production or U.S.-supporting economic activity. The executive order asked the FARC Council to consider such a shift, the council is still considering feedback on that issue. Now, that shift would be a sea change, but it's not happening, at least not in the foreseeable future. Still, for companies that provide non-COTS products to the government under procurement subject to the Buy American Act, it be important to assess the ability to meet the heightened thresholds and develop a strategic approach moving forward. The second rule that we want to highlight is the Department of Defense final rule on enhanced debriefings. On March 18th, DOD issued that rule to amend the DFARS to require enhanced debriefings and certain DOD procurements. This finalizes and formalizes some of the procedures DOD has been using under a class deviation since March 2018 and adds others. That class deviation at this final rule implemented congressional mandate from the National Defense Authorization Act for 2018. 
Enhanced briefings are important, not only because they can provide additional transparency to competitors, but also because they can affect the timing for protesting to the Government Accountability Office. If a competitor fails to avail itself of its rights under these rules, it will lose the opportunity to learn additional information and likely shorten its time to protest and accelerate the deadline to trigger the automatic stay under the Competition and Contracting Act. There are two steps to the debriefing process under these enhanced DOD procedures. First, the agency provides a traditional written or oral debriefing. That's the longstanding FAR Part 15 requirement. Second, the offeror may, but is not required to, submit written questions. If it does, the debriefing remains open until the agency responds. If the offeror timely submits questions, the agency must respond within five days. The default, at least, is that the debriefing ends with the agency's written responses. The protest clock at GAO often starts when a debriefing ends. This is the case both for purposes of GAO's timeliness rules, which are not directly affected by this rulemaking, and for purposes of securing an automatic stay under SICA in the implementing FAR and DFARS provisions. That's why it's often critically important to pinpoint the exact date when the debriefing closes. DOD's enhanced procedures can extend these timelines by the two business days allowed to submit questions and the five business days for the agency to respond. DOD's rule also codifies the standard established by the Federal Circuit in its NECA Technologies decision last year, which is that if an offeror fails to timely submit questions, the offeror must file its protest within five days of the standard debriefing to trigger the SECA stay. The DFARS is now clear that the five days runs from the required debriefing if the offeror fails to or declines to avail itself of the option to submit questions. Another aspect of the rule, and one that was not previously implemented through the class deviation, is that the agency is required to provide a redacted copy of its source selection decision in some circumstances. This applies automatically to all awards over $100 million. For awards over $10 million but below $100 million, the agency must give small businesses and non-traditional defense contractors an option to request the decision. In all cases, the source selection decision can and should be redacted to remove confidential and proprietary information of offerors. When these enhanced debriefing procedures apply, they're also available to successful offerors, to awardees. What's the upshot of these enhanced procedures? It should mean more transparency, at least in theory, as to DOD's procurement decisions. DOD says it hopes this minimizes unnecessary protests. There will be inevitable tensions over redactions. Plus, if an agency does not comply, that's likely to be an issue GAO is not going to consider. There now should be less ambiguity around whether a DOD debriefing is open, but the potential for ambiguity will remain. If a company thinks DOD is keeping a debriefing open, it needs to be comfortable that decision is clear in writing. And of course, these rules do not apply to all DOD procurements or any procurements not covered by the DFARS. The rule provides disappointed offerors the opportunity for more time to process their disappointment and decide whether or not to protest. Hopefully, DOD will actually follow through on its policy of providing more information that these companies can consider during this additional time. The next item is the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Notice of Proposed Rulemaking issued in late February that would update USDA's FAR supplement, the AGAR, with a pair of clauses requiring contractors to disclose violations of certain labor and employment laws and certify compliance with labor laws during performance. These clauses would apply to any USDA contracts above the simplified acquisition threshold. The first clause requires certification to compliance with at least 15 federal labor laws and equivalent state laws and promptly report to the contracting officer any future adjudicated noncompliance. It also requires that the companies certify, to the best of their knowledge, that subcontractors and suppliers are in compliance with these laws. The rule says USDA, quote, 
considers certification under this clause to be a certification for purposes of the False Claims Act, end quote. So we know where the agency stands on the materiality of the certifications and disclosures. The second clause requires that USDA offerors certify that they and their proposed subcontractors are in compliance with any past corrective actions for adjudicated labor law violations and provide a list of any past adjudicated violations. All of this must be disclosed prior to award, and there's no cutoff in terms of a look-back period, and the contractor must update the government every six months. The USDA contemplates that its contracting officers will consider this information in making responsibility determinations. There's no objective thresholds or criteria to use in determining whether an offeror's record is satisfactory in this area. What laws are encompassed within these requirements? Executive Order 11246, which is the original Equal Employment Opportunity Executive Order, the Fair Labor Standards Act, Service Contract Act or Service Contract Labor Standards, the Davis-Bacon Act, the Occupational Safety and Health Act or OSHA, the National Labor Relations Act, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the Family and Medical Leave Act, the Executive Order on Minimum Wage, the Executive Order on Human Trafficking, among several others. It is not clear if this is a definitive or an illustrative list of federal laws. And then there's the attempt to cover state laws, too. You might be thinking, what's an adjudicated violation? Well, it's not defined. That'll need to be clarified. As you may know, many alleged labor law issues are resolved when the contractor agrees to provide back pay without the need for any formal adjudication. If this rulemaking proceeds, hopefully such situations will be clearly excluded. The rule would also need to address arbitration awards and provide more detail on covered state laws. It's also worth noting that at least at this point, USDA does not seem inclined to include a de minimis exception. It was, of course, expected that there would be renewed focus on labor and employment issues from the executive branch under President Biden's administration, and we've seen that over the past year plus. USDA's proposal echoes back to President Obama's Executive Order 13673, Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces, from July 2014, and the 2016 FAR rule implementing that executive order. That rule, which industry dubbed the blacklisting rule, was intended to apply government-wide to contracts valued at $50,000 or more. It would have required offerors to disclose adjudicated and alleged labor law violations with the expectations that the agencies would use that information in making responsibility determinations prior to award. The implementation ultimately was enjoined by a federal judge, and then Congress repealed the implementing regulations in 2017 under the Congressional Review Act. That means the FAR Council cannot issue a similar rule without Congress's approval. Time will tell if this USDA rule is an independent effort by one agency or more of a test case, an effort by the administration to do agency by agency what likely cannot be done government-wide due to the Congressional Review Act. In any case, we expect industry to push back on this proposal and comments opposing it, and there almost certainly would be litigation if it were to be implemented. Lastly, it's worth noting that USDA's budgets have swelled in recent years with mandates to help address the effects of climate change and the rural broadband rollout. So companies that did not historically contract with USDA may be doing so now or they may in the future. So the effect of this rule could be broader than one might expect. We'll keep an eye out for updates. And the last rulemaking that I'll highlight in this segment also is labor-related. It's a substantive rule. It's the extensive 100-plus-page proposed rule the Department of Labor issued to amend the regulations implementing the Davis-Bacon Act 
and related acts that apply to federal construction contracts. The gist of the DBA is the requirement that contractors and subcontractors on federally funded construction projects pay at least the local prevailing wages. DOL itself calls this the most comprehensive update to the DBA rules in decades, and that's a fair description. There are a number of interesting aspects of this proposed rule, including an attempt by the department to incorporate the DBA requirements by operation of law where necessary, changes to the methodology used to establish prevailing wages and to adjust them, changes to the way employees are classified, among other changes. We expect to provide a more detailed summary in a future episode, possibly as early as next month. In light of the infrastructure bill, the number of contracts that are covered by DBA requirements in coming years will be higher than it's ever been before. And so the number of contractors that are going to be subject to these requirements likely to be modified through this rulemaking is going to be higher than ever. That is a wrap for the regulatory highlights. I'll hand it over to Bill now. Bill's going to cover a number of interesting PubK headlines of note from the past month. Thanks, Mike. As you mentioned, I'll be starting with the administration's activity on pay equity. On March 15th, President Joe Biden issued an executive order addressing pay equity in the federal workforce and in federal procurement. The Office of Personnel Management will issue a proposed rule that will address how the government uses a job candidate's salary history when hiring new employees and establishing their salaries. The president directed the FAR Council and federal agencies to consider whether new rules are needed to limit or prohibit federal contractors from requesting and using salary history when hiring or making other employment decisions. Immediately following the president's order, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs issued a directive regarding contractor pay equity audits. Contractors are already required to review their employee compensation to identify any gender or race-based disparities to correct any problem areas. This new directive interprets this obligation as requiring contractors to perform a pay equity audit, which must be provided to OFCCP upon its request. The directive signaled the office's intention to analyze pay practices during compliance reviews. Those audits will include a broad review of a contractor's workforce, during which OFCCP will use regression analyses and other tools to look for patterns of segregation in job titles, levels, roles, positions, and functions, which in turn drive pay disparities. If auditors identify pay concerns, they will have broad authority to continue digging and may request internal pay equity reviews. The directive specifically states that contractors may not claim attorney-client privilege to withhold pay equity reviews. However, they may conduct a separate pay equity audit for the purpose of obtaining privileged legal advice. During a recent address on corporate compliance and enforcement, Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite addressed the Department of Justice's focus on white-collar compliance. According to Polite, simply having a compliance program isn't enough. DOG expects programs to be well-designed, adequately resourced and empowered, and to actually work in practice. Polite also provided details about what the department will look for to confirm that these elements are in place. In order to ensure that chief compliance officers are empowered, DOJ also may start requiring additional certifications from a company's chief executive officer and chief compliance officer. For example, when a company reaches the end of a deferred prosecution or non-prosecution agreement, DOJ may require the CEO and CCO to certify that the company's compliance program can reasonably detect and prevent violations of the law and is functioning effectively. 
In cases where a monitor is not imposed and a company is required to provide annual self-reports on the state of their compliance programs, Polite's team will consider requiring the CEO and CCO to certify that all compliance reports submitted during the term of the resolution are true, accurate, and complete. Polite says the steps are not intended to be punitive, but to ensure that compliance officials have appropriate stature within the organization and have a voice in decision-making. Last month, the Department of Justice appointed Associate Deputy Attorney General Kevin Chambers to serve as the Director for COVID-19 Fraud Enforcement. Chambers will lead DOJ's criminal and civil enforcement efforts to combat COVID-19-related fraud. So far, the department has brought criminal charges against more than 1,000 defendants, seized more than $1 billion in economic injury disaster loan proceeds, and launched more than 240 civil investigations into alleged misconduct in connection with pandemic relief loans. Also this month, DOJ closed the first settlement under its Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative. Comprehensive Health Services, LLC, will pay $930,000 to resolve claims that it falsely certified its compliance with cybersecurity requirements in government contracts. Among the claims, DOJ alleged that CHS billed the State Department for a secure electronic medical record system, but did not consistently use the system to store patient medical records. Instead, many records were stored on non-secure network drives that were accessible by unauthorized persons. As the economy is battered by inflation, the General Services Administration is giving scheduled contractors a break on price. In a recent memorandum, GSA provided some temporary flexibility on the limitations on price increases and provided a temporary moratorium on the enforcement of some of those limitations in economic price adjustment contract clauses. GSA notes that many contractors are seeking price adjustments due to inflation or are simply removing items from their contracts to avoid selling them at a loss. In order to ensure that federal buyers have access to what they need at a fair price, GSA is relaxing the time limitations on EPA increases and on the number of EPA increases a contractor may request. GSA is also lowering the approval threshold for EPA increases. Previously, contractors had to receive approval from the contracting director. During this temporary moratorium period, approvals will be made at one level above the contracting officer. If a contractor has removed an item from their schedule contract, GSA also will not enforce the limitation on adding the same item back at a higher price. GSA cautions that this is not a free pass for price increases. Contracting officers will still evaluate requests and may accept, negotiate, or reject them. Still, this is some welcome news for contractors. The moratorium is effective immediately and will remain in effect until September 30th, the end of this fiscal year. The Department of Defense recently issued a proposed rule that would amend its mentor-protege program. The key changes include an extension of the program through the end of fiscal year 2024. The proposed rule also would shorten participation terms to two years unless approval for a third year is obtained. Finally, the rule expands program eligibility to more small contractors. Previously, a proposed protege had to be less than half the SBA size standard for its primary NAICS code. The proposed rule would require that proteges simply not exceed that size standard. Comments are due on or before April 29th. And finally, on March 18th, the Department of Defense issued another proposed rule that would bifurcate the definition of commercial item into commercial product and commercial service. The change is being made to align the DFARS with the revised definition of commercial item and will not result in any new solicitation provisions, contract clauses, or new requirements for contractors. It's Mike again. 
Thanks to Bill for those very timely PubK headlines. We'll be tracking developments in those areas and diving deeper into some of them over the coming months. One of those areas into which we'll be diving is the updated labor and employment requirements imposed on contractors. That will include both the Davis-Bacon rule that I mentioned and the OFCCP directive on pay equity audits that Bill highlighted. There are a number of interesting aspects of the directive, including potential implications for attorney-client privilege that contractors and their counsel should be thoughtful about. And turning now to the final segment, which, as promised, is my lengthy conversation with my colleague, Arnold and Porter partner, Sumi Ree. Sumi is a member of both our export controls and sanctions practice and our white collar and investigations practice. She brings over two decades of experience advising companies across a wide range of industries, with a particular focus on and expertise in high-tech industries. She advises companies on export control and sanctions issues and helps companies establish compliance programs in those areas, as well as anti-corruption compliance. Sumi represents clients in economic sanctions and export controls enforcement proceedings before all of the relevant regulators in the U.S., including the Office of Foreign Assets Controls, or OFAC, within the Department of the Treasury, the Bureau of Industry and Security, or BIS, within the Department of Commerce, and the Directorate of Defense Trade Controls, or DDTC, within the Department of State, as well as the Department of Justice. Sumi has been heavily involved in advising clients on the sanctions imposed on Russia in the wake of its invasion of Ukraine, the implications of those sanctions, and responding to them. She also has been a part of a hardworking team here that's turned out very timely, highly practical summaries of the sanctions as they've been announced. We'll leave sites to those summaries in the show notes. I can commend them based on my own personal experience. I've used them to better understand the sanctions and issue spot in my own practice. Recognizing that our audience tends to focus on government contracts law and may be less familiar with trade and sanctions law, the idea when we invited Sumi to participate was to provide a primer on sanctions generally and an overview of how the sanctions are being used in response to the war in Ukraine to apply pressure on Russia and to touch on some practical considerations for companies affected by the sanctions. Our conversation covers all of that and and more. We hope you find it useful. Sumi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. So for the audience, Sumi is a decorated partner who focuses on international trade matters. Sumi and other colleagues have been tirelessly covering developments on the Russia sanctions front for over the last month. So so maybe the first question, Sumi, is whether you've slept since February 24th. Have you? Well, if you include cat naps, yes, I've slept. (laughs) But that's a luxury right now. You guys have been doing yeoman work, uh, and thank you for that. So we're excited to have you to discuss trade and sanctions issues. For those in the audience who are not familiar with economic sanctions, we should start with basics. What are sanctions? How do they work? What are they intended to do? And who enforces them for the U.S. government? So could you provide a, a brief primer on those types of basic core issues? Okay. Well, sanctions, as we generally understand them, are mainly administered by the U.S. Department of Treasury, Office of Foreign Assets Control, and by now I'm sure you've heard the acronym OFAC. There is also the U.S. Department of State that administers certain types of sanctions, but for today's purposes, we'll focus on OFAC-administered sanctions. And what it essentially does, and there are two types of sanctions traditionally. One is what we call a country territory-based sanctions, which essentially prohibits U.S. persons from conducting any transactions with that jurisdiction or territory. The second is what we call list-based, and this is where you probably heard the other famous OFAC acronym, SDN, for Specially Designated Nationals, where the U.S. government has 
rather than imposing sanctions on the entire jurisdiction, specified entities, governments, and individuals that are placed on what's known as an SDN list. And essentially, US persons are prohibited from engaging in any transactions with those SDNs. So those are the two types of sanctions that have existed to date. Now, I know with the what's going on with Russia, we're using the term sanctions more broadly because there have been export control restrictions and import restrictions that's been placed, but it's all being done under the rubric of sanctions because essentially these are measures that the U.S. government's imposing to exact some financial pain <laughs> and really prevent the Russian, I guess, those who are supporting the Russian aggression in Ukraine from getting access to U.S. economy and funds. So I understand, broadly speaking, as, as you mentioned, there's three types of sanctions, if you will, defining sanctions broadly, that have been implemented by the administration to penalize Russia. New export controls, new import controls, uh, or at least ju- adjusted controls, and new restrictions on financial institutions. So maybe it makes sense to provide an overview of each of those areas? Sure. Why don't I first go over what OFAC is doing at the moment. And so there have been uh, designations. So the quite a few oligarchs, Russian-owned governmental entities, Russian-owned state-owned entities, banks that are involved in international commercial transactions in Russia, and individuals that's been designated as SDNs. And pursuant to that designation, U.S. persons cannot conduct any transactions with them. That's one catering bucket of sanctions that's been imposed. The others are the U.S. has actually imposed a restriction in new investment in the energy sector. So this is a slightly different type of sanction where the U.S. government is targeting a very specific industry and is saying U.S. persons cannot invest in them. And one thing to note is there was an executive order that was issued last Friday, and there's a lot of fanfare because of all the ban on export of luxury goods. What was maybe not highlighted as much was the delegation of authority to the Treasury Department that essentially they can designate other industries in fairly short order and then ban new investments or other transactions related to those industries. And there's some rumors as to what those industries may be. The other category is more less severe than SDN, not quite like an industry-specific sanction, but what we call more of a can't do transactions with them, but you don't have to block their assets. And this one category would be Spurbank, where U.S. persons cannot engage in financial transactions with Spurbank after a specified date. But this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to block the assets and property of Spurbank going forward. Another category would be the major finance arms of the Russian government, the Central Bank of Russia, RDIF, the finance ministry. There are certain transactions that cannot be conducted with these agencies. So that's one other category. So these are the broad strokes category of sanctions. And finally, that OFAG administers is what we call more of a sectoral sanctions where they've identified certain companies in certain sectors, and they're generally energy sectors or in the financial sectors, where you can engage in any other transaction, but you can't engage in new debt and new equity transactions. So those are the four different sanctions that happen, even within sanctions administered by OFAC. 
The next is the export controls, and those are administered by the U.S. Department of Commerce, specifically Bureau of Industry and Securities, another acronym BIS. And at the moment, uh, broadly speaking, these are the restrictions that have been imposed. Number one, you know, there is what's called a CCL, which lists a category of items that are subject to export administration regulations. And previously, there would be large swaths of items that could be exported to Russia without a license. Now, essentially, all the items that are on the CCL require a license to be exported to Russia. Um, Now, the remaining items, which are the majority of items that are actually being exported to Russia, at least from the United States, are what we call ER99. And that's the catch-all for all other non-high-tech items, more consumer items are ER99. Um, those could be exported to Russia without a license. However, with the luxury goods ban, if it's a luxury good item, you still now require a license to export those to Russia. So those are the Russia export controls. And I know, uh, Mike, you have more specific questions about how the contours of the export administration regulation change. So I'll get into that when you ask those questions, because I can go on and on about the implications. The final is the import ban. And this is actually also administered by uh, OFAC, and it's the importation uh, restriction on crude oil. And it's very specific to crude oil only. I know people have probably seen news articles that talk about steel imports. That's really an EU-specific restriction, and the U.S. has not imposed similar import restrictions to date. Excellent. Thanks. So, Sumi, In terms of the export piece, a big part of that is the invocation, as I understand, a rule I hadn't heard of before, the foreign direct product rule, which has been used, I understand, sparingly in the past and never applied to an entire country. Could you walk us through that rule and how it's being applied here? Okay, sure. Um, So... And I want to just say this at the outset, because there's been a lot of confusion with new concepts that's been introduced, like what you said, foreign direct product rule that are very specific to Russia. With the change in the export administration regulations pertaining to Russia, what has not changed or what were previously subject to the EAR remains subject to the EAR. That has not changed because there are some provisions that give favorable treatment for what's called a participating country. So those countries that have essentially promised the United States that they're going to impose similar export restrictions as it concerns export to Russia. But I want to be very clear, what was subject to the ER remains subject to the ER. What this regulation amendment has done is expanded the universe of foreign-made items that could become subject to the ER. And so before I go into the FDPR, I want to note that because majority of the items on the CCL are now subject to licensing requirements. In the past, when people were using what we call the de minimis rule for purposes of determining whether your foreign-made item is subject to the AR, and that de minimis rule has a 25% content requirement, if there is more than 25% of U.S. origin controlled component, that foreign-made item became subject to the AR and subject to all the export licensing requirements. What has changed is because so many items now require a license to go to Russia, when doing that 25% calculation, more U.S. components become captured and therefore more foreign-made items become subject to the EAR from this 25% calculation. That's number one. Now let's go to the FDPR. This is 
the countrywide imposition of FTPR actually did exist previously, but it existed for national security controlled items and for certain categories of countries, not all countries. What this FTPR looks very similar to is what the Trump administration brought in, which was really specific to Huawei. So this is more of a Huawei-esque FTPR. And this, of course, expands the universe once again of items that would become subject to the EAR pursuant to the FTPR rule, because this is no longer limited to those items that are only controlled for national security purposes. It includes a lot of other items. Now, one good news is that unless the end foreign-made item is intended for a military end user, if that end item is ER99, you still do not have to use the foreign direct product rule, the FTPR, for purposes of determining whether your item is subject to the EAR. Okay. And now, is that is that the restriction on Russian military end use and a, a carve-out to that, or that, that is that separate? So Russian military end and end user, those provisions are still in the EAR. But what the U.S. government has decided to do is the Russian military end users were actually moved on to the entity list. Mm, okay. And so pursuant to the entity list, for majority of them, they would essentially say you can't send any item subject to the EAR to these military end users. There's some um, exceptions for food and medicine related items. But otherwise, you just essentially can't send any subject to the year items to the military end users. And, and it's easier now. You just look at the entity list to make that determination. Okay. And so when we talk about the scope of items that are now subject to a requirement to hold an export license, we're talking about things like microelectronics, telecommunications equipment, navigation equipment, avionics, aircraft uh, components, et cetera, right? That's correct. And so that was one of the very significant items. And I don't know, for the uh, export administration geeks out there, you probably noticed it. Um, when the administration first came out with the amendments to the EAR, what was quite striking was that they allowed the full use of license exception ENC, which is known as license exception encryption. So if you had semiconductor products that had encryption functionality, and generally these are more what we call higher controlled, but you can rely on license exception ENC to still ship it to Russia without obtaining a separate license. And they allow that to be used, even in the amended Russia-related EAR. And people thought, wow, that is surprising. I guess we can continue sending high-tech semiconductors. Two days later, when the administration decided to impose the same export restrictions on Belarus, what was hidden in the 90-page amendment was actually restricting the use of license exception, ENC, to very limited circumstances. So now these high-tech, what we call telecommunications and semiconductors cannot be exported to Russia without authorization unless you fall into this very small category exception. Okay, super helpful. Thank you. And so for the non-export administration nerds like myself, one of the big impacts here is for the interplay between the expansion of what is required to now have an export license and the application of the FTPR is those items, if there's a certain percentage made in a foreign country, even though it's originating from a foreign country, it could be covered by these regulations. Now. Yeah. And so just to shift focus to the import restrictions that you mentioned, we're talking about imports to the U.S. now. Is that limited to Russian oil? That is correct. 
as okay. that term is defined. And there are very specific terms within okay. the executive order. Okay. And so it, 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 but it does extend. So it is uh, Russian fuel. It would also include liquefied natural gas and coal, I believe, as well. I believe so. But this one is one I would double check. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> And then, and so, so to this point, I know there's been talk about Russia is a significant producer of a number of other of their exports, including things like wheat, um, and then very different uh, export metals, um, right. including aluminum, palladium, nickel. But to date, at least with respect to the U.S., again, it's a global economy, and different countries are handling things differently. But with respect to the U.S. regulations, they haven't imposed sanctions specific to those exports from Russia imported into the U.S. Correct. Now, EU has issued steel imports bans, but I believe the uh, metals that you have mentioned are exempt, even from EU import bans. Okay. But we are seeing, as again, as I I understand from the trade press, we're seeing companies self-sanction if you will, and deciding, okay, I'm going to stop or at least start weaning the company off of certain metals and other exports from Russia, either to prepare for future restrictions or to help deal with the financial restrictions as well. And so are, are you seeing that in your practice, Sumi? Yes, we are. I mean, not limited to the steel that we just talked about, but we do have clients And this is what's been very interesting and unlike any sanctions previously administered is the fact that these sanctions are not are happening in tandem, not just being spearheaded by the U.S. government, but it's being done by EU, UK, other friendly states. And sometimes they're actually ahead of the game. Like I said, the steel imports EU is ahead of the game. So companies in the United States are taking cues from that thinking, okay, we could actually be next and this could impact U.S. industry. So why don't we proactively or at a minimum start considering winding down our um, importation of certain items? And that's the approach many companies are taking. And as as you alluded to, that's precise. One of the reasons why is because of the financial restrictions. So they are concerned about the credit risk that arises from, yes, we can export our products, but what, what if we can't get paid? Mm-hmm. So that is definitely weighing in the minds of a lot of our clients and they're making their business decisions, not solely based on current sanctions, but you know, practically speaking, will they be paid at the end of the day? Sure. So maybe painting with a broad brush, but what's your sense of the sectors and industries that are most heavily impacted or at least expected to be most heavily impacted? by the sanctions on Russia? I mean, (laughs) I have to say all industries that actually, I mean, here's the deal. If you export or import like with Russia and they're in that industry, you're heavily impacted. Even Mm -hmm. if you're not, um, there's going to be a supply chain issue if you're reliant on within some supply, something coming from Russia or you're selling to some distributors in Europe, but ultimately their intended sales market is Russia. I can't really, because right now I've been thinking of all the clients I've been advising and they really run the entire spectrum you could imagine from Mm -hmm. luxury goods to very heavy industries in defense. Like just, I I don't think I have, I can really say I'm only advising one industry right now. And that's really the answer, right? It affects, especially because, well, for it's two factors, I believe. It's the the breadth of the financial sanctions. And then also the fact that the economy, the Russian economy, 
both their exports and their imports are so intertwined with other economies around the globe that it's so difficult to deal with these sanctions in the short term. That's correct. So for the government contracting audience, there are companies in the defense industrial base that could be adversely affected to the point of not being able to support the U.S. government, at least under certain contracts or certain contractual requirements as a result of the the restrictions that are part of these sanctions. And I'm talking specifically about some of the export and import restrictions. Are there any exceptions or waivers available uh, with respect to those restrictions where it's in the government's interest or the government's an end user? There are certain license exceptions available, but I don't think this would really cover the scenarios you're talking about. But Right now, the policy that's been implemented by the Department of Commerce is a policy of denial. That being said, they will review cases um, when they have specific license application on a case-by-case basis. And certainly, if this this would be detrimental to U.S. national security interests, there would be licenses issues. This has happened in any other regime, and I don't really think there would be an exception to this particular um, situation. Now, getting those licenses quickly is a different (laughs) question altogether. And so, and you alluded to the SUMI earlier, but anyone following the news has heard that part of the U.S. effort has been to convince allied countries to support our country's efforts, including on the sanctions front. And so, and again, you alluded to this, but the idea of parallel sanctions. And so could you provide an overview of the current lay of the land in that respect? There are large swaths of uh, countries that are now doing something very similar, having their own list of designated entities and individuals that are subject to asset blocking. And previously, you know, US, perhaps EU, UK would be at the forefront, but you're now seeing other allied countries like Australia, Canada, Japan, Korea coming out with very similar lists. But what was most striking to me is this commitment by uh, what they call the cooperating participating countries, even mentioned within the EAR, that are coming out and they're currently amending their country's export regulations to mirror that of the United States at a minimum with respect to exports to Russia so that there wouldn't be any leakage. That's something that doesn't get caught by the U.S. export laws. doesn't mean that you can export it from these other, at least the allied and participating cooperating countries. And that's pretty significant because we haven't seen that level of cooperation unless it's pursuant to some Vosner Treaty for the Vosner Treaty members for very specific types of items. But to do this like whole swap is pretty impressive. And then the, the flip side of, of that is through this question, which I've seen a lot of commentary around about whether this is a test run for or may need to be a test run for future sanctions against another country. And the one that comes up often is China to, for example, discourage aggression aimed at Taiwan or to curb other perhaps actions of China. And so is your what, what is your thinking in terms of this rollout of sanctions, which, as you said, has been unique in the coordination uh, in terms of parallel sanctions. But I would think that trying to do the same with respect to China, with which economies around the globe are even more entangled, of course, would be an entirely different situation. 
it would be really different. And I think um, China would have to invade some territory to get that level of cooperation because you've seen the U.S. take the leadership role with respect to its actions against Huawei. But, you know, allied countries didn't all take the same sense. And many of them were actually opposed to many of the restrictive measures imposed by the United States. So to see a tandem and this level of cooperation, it will really depend on what China does. (laughs) And they will have to show uh, and maybe engage in war activities. And perhaps that will bring the countries together. But that's a real open question, because as you know, the economies are much more intertwined, generally speaking, with China than even Russia. Right. Sorry, Zumi, and especially on in the technology area, semiconductors and, and so forth. Yeah. Exactly. And so when we talk about sanctions, we're referring to sanctions on Russia in this case. Of course, if a company doesn't comply with the restrictions that enforce or implement sanctions, trade sanctions, those companies can be penalized or sanctioned, if you will. So can you explain how enforcement of the Russia sanctions that we've talked about will work, including who are the relevant regulators or enforcement agencies? And what are the potential repercussions for companies that are non-compliant? Sure. So um, the underlying statutory authority for all of these executive orders pursuant to which the U.S. imposed sanctions comes from the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEPA. So under the IEPA, to the extent that you are subject to U.S. jurisdiction, then you can be imposed civil and criminal penalties there under if you violate the sanctions issued under the executive orders. Now, you know, the same applies if you violate the export administration regulations, the authorities under the um, Export Control Reform Act, but it's the same level of penalties apply civil and criminal penalties. And I get this question a lot. Okay, what if I am a non-US person, I don't have any assets in the United States, but I violate the export administration regulations, what can the US government do to me? And I always say they can do something worse to you. And what's worse than civil and criminal penalties? They'll put you on the entity list, which means you will not have access to U.S. goods and technology in perpetuity unless you get off that entity list. And that could be uh, much more severe than any of these penalties. And beyond that, then we come back to the sanctions realm and we think, okay, if I'm I'm a non-U.S. person, I generally don't have to even comply with any of the sanctions provision, which generally applies to U.S. persons. What could happen to me? And this is a question we get a lot, especially in the context of China, because the U.S. government has always concerned at, about potential diversion, evasion of these regulations, uh, and sort of all of that happening near or in China. <laughs> what does that mean? So that means that the U.S. government can really start implementing one of the provisions that are in all of the executive orders. When they decide to designate a, an agency, entity, individual as an SDN, they always say, and this is a catch-all, if any person provides material support, assistance to the SDNs that we have designated pursuant to this executive order, we're also going to designate you as an SDN. So that is one of the biggest threats that the U.S. has out there, which are normally deemed as a secondary sanction. And people say, well, I, don't, I haven't seen this happen. This has happened time and time again, especially under the UN sanctions regime. I'm sure you saw a couple of years ago, Costco shipping got designated as an STN. 
precisely pursuant to this type of provision, we've had a previous Chinese banks designated precisely under the same type of provision for assisting SDNs and helping them evade sanctions. Great. And I understand in terms of U.S. companies, they've already been visited through what, what are called friendly visits by regulators, but the message has been that future visits will not be as friendly. And so this is essentially a, a warning to be cognizant of these restrictions and to comply with them. That's correct. So a lot of companies um, have stepped up and we're assisting them with coming up with more enhanced uh, third-party diligence, more enhanced diligence into their supply chain, just to ensure that um, there wouldn't be any diversion of products that clearly would be intended for Russia. And um, so we're coming up with programs and frameworks to conduct these diligence. And we said the way you used to do it in the past is not going to be sufficient under the current environment. And so to, to shift over to, to that issue, Sumi, the issue of what, what practical steps should U.S. companies be taking now in response to the extent they haven't already in response to those, uh, to these sanctions? Prime among them, I would think, is some type of a gap assessment of their current policies and procedures against these very different new requirements and restrictions. And I think it would sort of depend on the industry and the business you have and how much exposure you had to Russia in general. But um, obviously the financial restrictions, the forefront of all of this complying is going to be at the bank level, but you also certainly do not want to be accused of having caused a bank to be in violation. So you want to make sure that um, all the banks involved in your financial transactions don't involve SDN banks and I'm hoping you already have that measure in place because this is not really specific to Russia. But what I've been advising other clients that are more in the exporting space and they is that if you know as part of your business plan that your products, like 10% of your products ultimately go to Russia and now you can't export it to Russia and you're starting to get um, orders from those who previously have never ordered from you or have ordered from you, but now are asking for greater quantities. Later on, it will be seen deemed a red flag if you didn't conduct further diligence and made inquiries as to what is this use for. Um, and, and I really ask the hard questions. I know clients always say, we can't ask these questions. I, I understand, but these are very different times. And the expectation of the government is that you ask these questions, especially if you're in the industry that the US government thinks will help in the uh, development of Russia's, you know, defense, military capabilities. <laughs> sure. And, and, and I imagine sort of like the issues that I advise on, the compliance issues, the government contracting compliance issues that I advise on, one of the focuses of compliance programs is the training to alert the individuals, the personnel within the companies to the issues that they need to spot. And that may be in sales, it may be in engineering, it may be in management, it may be in, in supply chain. And so it sounds like there's going to be similar training required, at least for those companies in high risk areas on these sanctions to know when to spot, as you called it, a red flag. Exactly. And some other clients, what we've recommended it also, you may want to do, like you say, gap assessment, maybe an internal 
risk assessment, even mini investigation, where you just look at your files to see how much of your business were reliant on Russia, or your salesperson has communicated with other customers that ultimately deal with Russia. If you all have that information, later you're subject to an enforcement action because diversion happened. You really can't defend yourself saying, oh, I, I didn't know because somebody within your company knew. So there are companies out there that we have urged, depending on their risk profile, to conduct this type of assessment now. Now, now in, in terms of contractual arrangements and addressing contingencies around the sanctions in existing and now, and now future contractual arrangements, are you seeing companies try to contract around or account for the sanctions in commercial transactions, mergers, corporate transactions, and so forth? Yes. And for Russia, you know, there was fair warning from 2014 when <laughs> Russia annexed Crimea. So I, I've certainly seen clients uh, engaged in contracts relating to Russia, where they would, whether they try to create a new force majeure uh, event definition that would include sanctions or have a separate sanction clause, depending on the industry, it's become more of a norm to add them. I'm not saying this is across the board the case, but we've certainly seen that. And right now, our clients are trying to use contractual terms to terminate their continued obligations under the various contracts. And rest assured, there'll be a lot of arbitrations coming forward as a result of these <laughs> exercise of these various termination provisions. Yeah, and litigation as well, ultimately. Yeah. Um, and then. Uh, my understanding is that the expectation is with some of these restrictions, and, and really, I think it's it's a result of a number of these restrictions, including the export restrictions, but also the financial restrictions, that there is going to be a push to source, uh, or it, it may be a supply side push to provide gray market products that violate the intellectual property of U.S. companies. Do you know if the administration currently has a plan to coordinate to try and protect U.S.-based intellectual property from that kind of fallout from the sanctions? Um, I have read about those myself. I don't have personal knowledge of any coordination by the U.S. government with others. What I do have heard is that the Russian government is definitely sending out notices <laughs> to to those operating in Russia that have expressed officially their intent to withdraw their business, that they're getting notices from the Russian government that if you proceed, we will seize your assets, tangible and intangible, <laughs> and nationalize mm -hmm. them. Sure. So this is what we're hearing. Okay, okay, interesting. And then I, I do think it would be, you've mentioned Huawei a couple of times to me. I think it would be uh, interesting to our audience, which is uh, government contractors and, and lawyers involved with government contracts to touch on Huawei because we're familiar with certain statutory and regulatory restrictions on Huawei uh, in the procurement area. And so I would be curious as to, your sense of the impact of the trade sanctions on Huawei over the last few years? Yeah, there were rolling sanctions. I'm using the term broadly sanctions, although you were export control measures placed on Huawei. The first tranche really didn't have as big of impact, but when they created this new FDPR definition, the foreign direct product rule, 
a large swath of items that previously no one could have imagined would be subject to the EAR became subject to the EAR and, and all of them could no longer be exported to China to Huawei absent a license from the US government. There was a push and licenses were issued towards the end of the Trump administration. And these relate largely to like semiconductor products or other um, high technology products. But many of them actually were rescinded once the Biden administration came in. So, I mean, this is more anecdotal. I think the trade restrictions placed on Huawei has had a very significant impact because more items became subject to U.S. jurisdiction and then the U.S., government really utilized their um, authority to restrict trade being happening. So Ukraine and Russia are still very much in the midst of war. There's no obvious end in sight. That said, assuming for the sake of discussion that the heavy fighting ends and, and Russia makes concessions, how might the sanctions end and what would a winding down of sanctions against Russia look like? Well, I mean, the closest um, example I can find is after the JCPOA in Iran sanctions, the way those were rolled back. And I would imagine any suspension of aggression, the Russian government's going to want all these sanctions to be lifted. But at the same time, I cannot imagine U.S. and allied forces would all say, we're going to lift all the sanctions immediately. So what I would imagine is, if it's similar to Iran, an executive order would be issued that at least pulls back um, the, the effect of some of the executive orders in place that restrict tra trade with Russia. But it'll be on a rolling basis and different executive orders will be issued depending on the progress of the secession of aggression. That's what I would imagine. And the commerce would probably have to amend their, the EAR. Now, how quickly they'll do it, you know, commerce is generally very slow to amend, although they were very quick to issue these amendments this time around. But the rumor and on the street was they already had the ER amended and ready to be rolled out. So that's why they were able to issue it quickly. But I would think that there would be some delay on the EAR amendment side, allowing for the exports back to Russia. So it sort of really depends. Um, I'm not a soothsayer, so I can't say, but <laughs> I think it will happen in increments. It will not be a complete lifting of all of the measures that have been put in place. And certainly the SDN designations, those will take a lot longer. And the sanctions, it's probably also worth noting that the sanctions are just part of the equation, right? As the, as the sanctions are lifted, likely incrementally, doesn't mean that the economies are affected immediately. Companies start making, they may start making different investment decisions over time. That certainly doesn't happen immediately, especially if these sanctions are in place for a period of time. Right. Well, this has been this has been great, Sumi. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to speak with me on these very pressing issues. I know you've been very busy following this, advising clients across industries on it. So thank you so much. It was my pleasure. One end note to my discussion with Sumi, the situation surrounding these sanctions is evolving daily, as you can imagine. And so there have been developments, especially on enforcement initiatives, since we recorded that discussion. That said, everything we discussed in terms of sanctions is still in place. You can find summaries of the latest from Sumi and my other colleagues who are expert in this area on our website. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can just Google Arnold and Porter Ukraine-Russia Crisis Trade Sanctions and Export Controls. That'll take you to the landing page, and that's where they'll be posting updates on future changes. 
Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks again to Sue Me for guiding us through the Russia sanctions and to Bill, as always, for not only his substantive contributions, but also his editing prowess. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Bonafide Needs. We hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts and look for new episodes soon. Until then. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the Pub K Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Mike McGill and Bill Olfer. Our book and music is Ambient Piano and Strings by Zachar Falaha.